Well, good morning. It's so great to see you. Pastor Pondo's here. The gang's all here. It's terrific. Um, we have been trying to go back to the basics. Um, I figured coming to a new place, we're going to be hopefully getting people who live in this area to us, and I thought it'd be great to go back to the basics of what it is that we really believe. What are the foundational principles? What are the foundational concepts that we believe Jesus was really trying to convey to us and that animate us and have been animating our ministry now for 10 years? And so trying to get back to that, trying to get back to it. And of course, the only place that you could possibly start is the Father's love. I remember going to a church, and I think I said this two weeks ago, where the pastor got up and said, I want to talk about the Father's love this morning. But then I always want to talk about the Father's love. I'm that way too. It's the Father's love that is the... It's so hard to get language that is deep enough. The Father's love is the ground of all being. The Father's love is what brought the universe into being. The Father's love is what animates the universe and animates all of us. We, we cannot overestimate the importance of the Father's love. It is the foundational principle and concept in the New Testament and the Gospels. It's what Jesus was talking about over and over and over again. And we don't even realize it so much because we don't get the same meanings out of the words that he used, even as, as he was trying to define them. What is the kingdom but the quality of life lived in the presence and awareness of the Father's love? If we get the Father's love, everything that Jesus is talking about can flow from that point. If we don't get the Father's love, we're stopped in our tracks. And it's so very, very difficult to apprehend this. It's one thing even to be able to comprehend it. But even after you do that, even after you can put words to this, you can have some kind of framework in your mind. For instance, it took me 10 years from that point before I finally felt the release of what this really means if we are loved the way the Father loves us. It, it, it's, it's, it can't be undersung. And so I wanted to come back to it today. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the, the title was Changes Everything. And we're trying to talk about how this one concept, this one realization will change everything about your life. Every single moment, your attitude toward life, the choices that you make, and the way that you make them will be changed if you understand how we are connected to Father, what that basic dynamic and relationship really is. Last week, we, we kind of moved to, to thank Bubba, our, our, our dearly departed uh, co-founder and friend. But he was an exemplar of this Father's love. It's what transformed him. It's what gave him 13 extra years of his life sober and allowed him to turn a corner and to consistently say over and over again, I'm the most grateful guy in the room. And he meant it. And he could say that with authority, with authenticity, because he had come across this concept of the Father's love. Those who begin to get it are forced to use crazy language to try to describe it. There's a quote from Angelus Silesius, and you probably have never heard that name before. How many have heard of Angelus Silesius? Ah, right, we got a scholar here. That's just Jim. That's Lenny's brother. Um, so glad to have you here too. Angelus Silesius was a, uh, a 17th century you know, Catholic monk and, and theologian and poet and all sorts of things. But he said that if God 
ever stopped thinking of us. Now, dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that? If God ever stopped thinking of us, what? Probably we would cease to exist or something like that. What Angela said was, if God ever stopped thinking of us, he would cease to exist. Think about that for a second. How in the world do you make a statement like that? How do you make a statement like that out of a Catholic base, knowing what the theology of Catholicism is, or evangelical Christianity for that matter? How do you make a statement like that? Because you have experienced something that is so deep, it's so radical, that it changes the way that you look at life. It changes the way that you look at God. You can never look at him the same way again. You can't unsee this thing. You can live as if it's not true. You can move back into old patterns. But once you've really lived this, it changes things. G.K. Chesterton, I hope a few more of you have heard of him, you know, English writer and theologian and, and uh, uh, apologist, all these sorts of things, the first part of the 20th century. He wrote an essay called The Diabolist. And at the end of that essay, he, as he's leaving this place, can't distinguish between the fires of hell and the furious love of God. He can't distinguish between the fires of hell and the furious love of God. How do you make a statement like that? How do you put those two things juxtaposed together that way? Where does that come from? See, we have taken God's love and we've domesticated it. We've taken God's love and we've made it safe. But God's love is wild. God's love is not safe. And that may sound really strange to you. But it's not safe in the sense that it will require everything from us if we are really going to embrace it. It will require us to let go of everything that we have built up in our lives that makes us feel secure, that makes us feel certain of something. Because this love is so other, it is so complete, that we can't even get close to it until we let it burn all that stuff away. Brendan Manning picked up on the furious love of God in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, and used it as well. It's a great image, but it's an image how many of us would choose on this side of understanding what the Father's love is all about. Jesus' language was equally disturbing to his first followers, but we, after 2,000 years of homogenizing the Gospels, we don't see anymore the effect of that language but it was just as jolting, or even more so, to the people that he was trying to teach. Last week we talked about, two weeks ago, we talked about the trapeze analogy. Remember that one? That if we are going to approach something as radically different as the Father's love, it's like a trapeze artist who comes swinging in on one bar, has to release, spin to grab the next bar has to free fall and trust that the bar is going to be there, that the partner is going to be there to grab them. There's no way, other way to do this. You can't hold on to the one bar and try to get the next. You lose all your momentum. You can't do what you're supposed to do as an artist. You need to be able to let go and free fall into the next. We were talking about how many of us are willing to really let go of the bar that we swung in on. <laughs> the things that we have been using all our life to give us the certainty that you know, displaces the fear enough so that we can take another breath, another step, make another decision. These images hopefully will start to get you thinking more and more about where you are in this process. Why is it so hard to let go of that bar, by the way? 
Even if you're miserable, even if you know that there's something missing, it is still so difficult to let go of that bar. It's basic human psychology, you know. I remember there's a movie called Moscow on Hudson with uh, Robin Williams, and he was a Russian defector to the United States, and he didn't know what to do with all the freedom that he suddenly found himself having in New York City. He said, in the old country, I had my misery. It was my misery, and nobody could take it from me. The more you try to take my misery from me, the more it's there, right? You know, it's something you can count on. It's something that you have some control over. And even if it's miserable, the devil we know is preferable to the devil we don't know, isn't it? And so to let go of that bar and trust that something better is going to be there is so difficult for us to do. We mistake our faith journey. We think our faith journey is about a search for certainty, but it's not. A faith journey is living as if something is true, even as you step into deeper and deeper mystery. As soon as you're certain, absolutely certain, your faith journey is over. Because the faith journey is not a journey into certainty, but a journey into trust. And trust is experienced very differently. Trust is experienced in the absence of certainty. Just as faith is. So here we are. We're trying to move forward. We're trying to get to this deeper understanding of what this Father's love can possibly mean and how it can change everything. Why is it so crucial? Why is this idea so crucial? For one thing, nothing in your life experience can prepare you for the quality of the love of the Father. Because our life experience is fear-based, right? We got to live in entropy. Y'all know what that is? Second law of thermodynamics? Hey, we're getting into some good stuff here. This is very simple. It's everything goes from order to disorder. It never goes in the other way. Does your kitchen ever clean itself up by itself? No. Do the kids' rooms ever clean themselves up by themselves? Absolutely not. We have to expend energy to move from disorder to order. Everything goes the other way. There is no free lunch. We are constantly working for everything that we get. We're constantly pushing the ball up the hill, and as soon as we stop, it rolls back down again. We're constantly putting energy into relationships, into work, into everything. We're constantly trying to prove our worthiness at work, in relationships, in our faith communities, right? Because we don't believe that we're worthy, and we've got to do something. We've got to acquire something, bring something in, in order to be where we're supposed to be, fear-based. And if we apply that, notion to God's love, which we do all the time, then we've already completely eviscerated it. We've already taken away everything in it that Jesus calls good news. Everything that can start to change. Because God's love is not fear-based. God's love is trust-based. All the difference in the world. I wanted to read you John 4, 1, 1 John 4, because it doesn't get said any better than this in the New Testament for my money. One short passage. First John 4, starting at uh, verse 16. It's in your uh, inserts. Or... Look at that. He's so quick. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Read that sentence again. 
as he is, so also are we in this world. When? When love is perfected in us. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. It doesn't get any clearer than that. And yet, we can read this. Our heads can go up and down. And then in the next breath, we can continue to express ourselves as if we have to earn something, as if we have to do something, as if the law has to be kept in order for this love to be showered on us, that somehow God withholds until we do what we need to do, and then he pours out. See, this is not what John is saying. What John is saying is there is no fear in perfect love. Perfect love burns like the sun in every direction, full blast, all the time. And all you can possibly do to get away from it is stand in the shade. But you can't turn it off. You can't turn it down. You can't divert it. You can't do anything to it. It self-exists. You can't earn it, and you can't lose it. And your behavior means nothing in the face of this love. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Now, your behavior means everything to you actually experiencing the love. Notice the difference, right? The love is there, but you won't know it. The love is there, but you won't experience it. It won't change you. It won't do anything to you. It will be as if it didn't exist for you, but you can't turn it down or off. This is the distinction that John is trying to make. He's trying to tell us. This love is God, and God is this love. God doesn't do love as a verb the way we do, choose to do it or choose not to do it. God is this substance, this thing, that thing we call love. That's who God is. He can't not be himself. Does this not now start to make sense, what Angela Silesia said? If God stopped thinking of us, if God stopped loving us, having us forefront, the first thing in his mind, he would cease to exist as himself because he is love. Now you see where a statement so radical that you probably didn't agree with at first comes from. Maybe you still don't like the way it's stated, and that's okay. But you can see where it starts to come from when you start to actually have an experience of love this profound. I was trying to come up with an analogy, and it really was difficult for me to do. You know, the best ones Jesus already came up with. But it's like if you went to work for a company, and you were working your butt off day after day, week after week, year after year, slowly trying to climb the ladder, not getting appreciated for your job, thinking that you're not, you're substandard somehow, working harder and harder and harder, and finally you just give up, you quit, you go down the street, you apply for another company, And in their background check on you, they find out that you are the founder's long-lost son or daughter, and you actually own the company. I know, it's a little far-fetched, right? But notice the difference between the two. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. You own the company. You don't work for the company. You own it. You are co-owners. This is what he's trying to get across all the time, trying to get us to see there's something so different. Maybe a better example would be a romantic relationship. Has anyone ever had a bad romantic relationship? A little bit toxic? All right. I'm not going to ask for hands on this one. You know? <laughs> Thank you, dear. <laughs> 
There was, a, there was a great song back in the 60s called Spooky. Remember that one of the classics, Four? You know? In the cool of the evening, when everything is getting kind of groovy, you know it's from the 60s, right? I call you up and ask if you'd like to meet and see a movie. First you say no, you got some plans for the night, and then you stop and say, all right, love is kind of crazy with a spooky little girl like you. Have you ever had a relationship where the person was always keeping you off balance? Right? The person was always doing this and doing that, and, and you don't know if it's on purpose or if you're just imagining it, but you are being twisted around and you're being pulled around by the nose, and you're never feeling secure, and you're never feeling at peace, and you never really know what you've got. And then finally it breaks up somehow. You go to another relationship, and it's like it's falling off a log. It's so effortless. It's just the love flows. There are no games. Everybody is up front and lets you know where they stand. And you just, all of that tension goes out. And you realize, this is what love is like. It's not that. It's not holding on for dear life and trying to hold things together with duct tape and chewing gum. It's not like that. You know, it's this over here. There is this huge qualitative difference in the way that we live life. Are you living life white-knuckling it? Are you living life holding on for dear life to that trapeze bar that you rode in on? Or is something moving in your life in a different way? Is something starting to flow in a different way? And I suppose, you know, you've got to go right back to the beginning and say, what in the world do we even mean by love? If we're really going to understand what the Father's love is all about, what are we talking about? Is love a feeling? Is love an emotion? Is that, what you, is that how you see love? Yeah, sort of? No? Then is it, <laughs> well, then is it possible to love without the feeling of affection? Is it possible to love without the feeling of, you know, some kind of, of affective, you know, um, of course there are. In fact, the highest form of love that Jesus showed is love of the enemy. And what does that mean except that we don't have any feelings of affection? We don't feel close to this person. In fact, we feel alienated from them to the point that we may actively dislike them, be disgusted by them. They might be an adversary to us, and yet we're supposed to love them. How does that work if love is an emotion? Because you can't manufacture that emotion or that feeling. You can't do it, but you can love them anyway. So what does that mean then? Oh, we're going to do nice things for them. We're going to treat them as if we love them, right? Isn't that what Jesus is talking about? So then that asks the next question. Is love behavior? Is love loving behavior? Golden rule behavior. Is that what love is? Well, aren't loving things done to, from one person to another with motives other than love, other than other-centeredness? Well, of course. People do nice things all the time because they want to get something back. People do nice things all the time philanthropically so they can be seen in a certain light. There are all sorts of motives for good behavior, and the behavior is still good, that's great, but it's not love, Right? because it doesn't have the right motive to it. So if love is not a feeling and love is not behavior, what the heck is it? I think Thomas Merton did the best job of describing what love is. He said that love, not a feeling, not a behavior, is actually identification with the beloved. Really? What he's saying is is that when you identify completely with the other, where literally the line between where you end and they begin starts to blur, 
when what you do for them, in a certain spiritual and deeper sense, you're doing for yourself and vice versa, and you become kind of a walking, talking, golden rule yourself, something changes in you. If you really identify with the other, if you see them as a fellow human being, a fellow imperfect human being, maybe a broken human being, a human being who is not capable of doing certain things that you feel is necessary for real relationship, but you still see them as you see yourself and recognize yourself in them, then what flows out of you is behavior that will be compassionate, behavior that will be loving, behavior that will be positive, that will have their best interests at heart. You can't help it if you identify first. And then guess what happens if you keep repeating that behavior over and over again to that person? Their flaws dissipate and you actually start feeling something for them. This is the way it works. Love isn't the emotion or the behavior. It's identification. It's oneness. It's unity with. It's seeing the other as yourself from which flows all the rest of it in the most beautiful way. This is why Jesus says, if you can learn to love the enemy, it's because you've learned to identify. That's what it's all about. When Jesus was asked what his identity was, the best answer he gave was, I and the Father are one. Unity. Connection. This is what. If God is love, then what God really is, is unity. Oneness. Absolute connection out of which flows all the rest of it. God is unity. That's why the Jews named him unity. Elohim, multiple things functioning as one. Unity was at the core of all this. That's why they were so fiercely monotheistic. They, we had to understand the unity of God and that we could enter into that unity. And so, if God is this unity if that's what he is at core, if that unity is what gave birth to everything that is, then there can't be any degrees to God's love. God's love is what it is. It's like an element in the periodic table. It is what it is. You can't change it. You can't drill down into it and get something other than what it is. Same thing with God. There's no degree. There's an absolute degreelessness to God's love. Take a look at Matthew 5 here. Verse 43. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is not in the Bible anywhere. This is part of the rabbinical teachings, the oral tradition. You know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we read a line like that, and we say, what in the world is he talking about? How in the world can I be perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect? But what Jesus is saying is, when you become one with, when you identify with a person that you don't understand, don't get, don't like. In that moment, you are as perfect as the Father in heaven because your unity is what defines you. But look at what he says here. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
There is no degree to this love. You don't get more of it because you're a good boy or girl, and you don't get less of it when you blow it. This is so hard for us to understand. We don't want to accept it. There's another story at Matthew 20 where Jesus talks about workers who come to work in a vineyard, right? Early in the morning, midday, mid-afternoon, and just an hour before quitting time, there's workers that come. Now, the early morning workers agreed to work for a certain rate of pay, a denarius. That's fine, you know. At the end of the day, when they're going to get paid, the landowner says, start with those who came the latest and work backward. And so when the ones who came early in the morning see the ones who only worked an hour getting a full denarius, uh, they're licking their chops because they're thinking, oh, then we're really going to get paid. And they get the denarius too. And they're outraged and they're angry and they're complaining. What is Jesus trying to say here? That's not fair. Is that fair? That's not fair. That's not fair by any standards of the way that we live our daily life. This is why our daily life doesn't have an experience base to get us to a love that is not fair and it's not just. It's just perfect. Always in favor of the beloved. Jesus is trying to get this across. There are no degrees to God's love. God's love is always on. How in the world can we begin to comprehend a degreeless love. I've used this analogy before, and I hope it works. And uh, if you haven't heard it, let me know if it works for you. The, the latest view of this universe is that, by physicists, is that it's finite. That means it's not infinite. It doesn't go on forever. But it also has no edge. Okay, let that bake your noodle for just a second. It's finite, but it has no edge. All right? In other words, if you went and took any direction and set off, you're never going to get to a place where you pass the outermost galaxy or outermost star and go into nothingness and you can turn back and look at the ball of the universe. You can't do that. Even though the universe is expanding and everything's moving away from each other, all the galaxies, it's finite, but it has no edge. The analogy is in two dimensions if we were living on the surface of a beach ball, right? It's a beach ball. Wherever you walk, you're going to end up back where you started again. There's no edge, but it's still finite. But trying to think of that in three-dimensional space, where space is actually curving in on itself in some fantastic way. But here's the interesting thing, and here's why I bring it up. Here, standing on Earth in the Milky Way galaxy, we look out at the night sky, and we see the stars with their density and their distribution. If we were to go to the other side, the furthest galaxy that we can find through the Hubble telescope and we looked at the night sky, it would look exactly the same. Equal density, equal distribution. Wherever you go in the universe, it's going to look exactly the same, which means mathematically every point in the universe is exactly at the center of the universe, just like every point on the beach ball is exactly the center of the surface of the sphere. Did you see that? What I believe is happening is that God created a universe that physically illustrates the quality of his love. Wherever we are, we're always right in the center of God's love. Wherever we are, it always looks the same. If something has no edge, if something can't be measured, think about this, it always looks the same. A blue sky with not a cloud in the sky always looks the same, doesn't it? From day to day, from year to year, from when you were a kid to now, wherever you are on the globe, if you're looking at a cloudless sky, it looks the same. There's no edge. 
You put a cloud in the sky, now you've got differentiation, now you've got edges that you can measure. If you can't measure it, if it has no edge, it always looks the same. We are always trying to differentiate ourselves in order to be able to be worthy and to get God's love. And here's the irony. We don't have God's love because we're different. We have God's love because we're the same. God is connected to each and every one of us. God is unified with each and every one of us. That's who and what he is. Can we start to get that? Can we start to understand how that absolutely changes everything. We all get paid the same. No matter when we show up to this life, this spiritual life, it doesn't matter. When we enter God's love, we enter it fully because there's no other way for it to be. This is how God's love is. Degreeless and indiscriminate and therefore furious, right? According to Manning and Chesterton. Do you see where these crazy words start to come from when you start to move into an experience of this kind of alien love? And once comprehended, once you can even put words to it like I'm trying to do right now, how can we begin to actually trust it? Because until we trust it, it changes nothing in our lives. There are two stories in Luke where Luke tries to get this across. And the first one is when he's invited to Simon the Pharisee's house for dinner. And he accepts, of course, he always accepts, and he goes. And in the ancient world, in the East, people reclined at the meal. They, they leaned on their, on their left side, and they only used their right hand, and all the food was dipping food, and so you could recline on a couch. And so the tables were sort of horseshoe-shaped, generally speaking. And so everybody was radiating out from that horseshoe and the servers would come in through the open and serve from the inside of the table and then the people would lie about. And so this is probably the construction at Simon the Pharisee's house and the courtyard is filled and the street is jammed and a woman who was known as the worst sinner in the entire city, the entire village, pushes her way through and comes and stands behind Jesus' feet as he's lying on the couch against the table. And she is sobbing and her tears are falling on his feet. And then she pours the perfume out of, out of the alabaster jar and she is anointing his feet and drying with her hair. And what is Simon doing? He's saying under his breath, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would not have let her touch him. That he doesn't know means he's not a prophet. So he's putting this all together simply by judging who this is and that Jesus let her actually touch him. Jesus doesn't miss a beat. You can imagine, kind of like in a movie, he's still lying there. The woman is behind him, and he's dipping something in the bowl. And without even looking up, he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. He says, there's a moneylender who has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither could repay, and so he forgave them both. Which will love him more? And Simon says, I suppose the one he, whom he forgave more. And Jesus says, you're right. He says, I came into your house. You didn't give me cool water. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't wash my feet. All these were basic customs in the East. None of that happened to Jesus. Yet this woman has come in, and she has not stopped washing my feet and anointing them. She, who has much to be forgiven for, has loved much. 
And he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then he turns and says, your sins are forgiven, sister. You know, just go. Sin no more. Stop living the way that creates this kind of tension in your life. Two characters contrasted and juxtaposed. Simon and the woman. Now we fast forward to the prodigal son. A man has two sons, a younger and an elder. The elder one does everything he's supposed to do and stays with the father. The younger one asks for his share of the inheritance and the father gives it to him. And you have to understand in that culture, to go against your father and mother was was a capital offense. The families lived and died on a military-like hierarchy and precision. He asks and receives his share of the inheritance and then he immediately leaves the family. Boys didn't leave the family. Only the girls left the family. You always gained a daughter-in-law, but you never lost your son, which means that the family's wealth stayed put. The family's wealth was still there to serve the family. This boy is saying, not only, Father, you're as good as dead to me, but I don't care about the survival of this family, and I'm taking my wealth and going that you've given me. And he goes to a far country. He lives a loose life. That's what prodigal means, a spendthrift life. Goes through all his money, goes through all his friends, and finds himself not even being allowed to eat the husks that the pigs eat. And he's sleeping with the pigs. And of course, in Jewish society, that's the lowest you can go, pig being an unclean animal. And then he has a brain fade. No, he has a brain spark. And he realizes, even the hired hands at my father's house live better than this. I'm going to go back. I am going to say I'm not worthy to be your son, but just hire you back so that I can live on your estate. Notice there doesn't even seem to be any sense of the hurt that he's caused to his family. This is just enlightened self-interest. Right? And he sets off, rehearsing this speech all the way. When the father sees him from afar, just cresting the rise on the edge of his property... You can imagine the strangled cry that comes out of his throat and he bolts, he runs, dead run for his son. Hebrew patriarchs never ran. That was undignified. You imagine him having to lift up his robe in order to be able to run. You know, those knobby knees flashing as he's running down. Hebrews didn't show skin. That was immoral. He's doing everything wrong from the get-go. And when he gets to his son, before that boy has a a chance to even get a word out. He drapes himself over him and kisses him. The word there is translated as he kissed him, but if you look at the construction, it was he couldn't stop kissing him. And remember, this boy hasn't had a shower in how long? Was sleeping in the pig muck, and he doesn't care. His Sunday best is wrapped around this boy as he continues to just kiss and kiss and kiss. And before the boy can get anything out, he orders his servants to kill the fatted calf and set the table because we're going to have a party. Now, the elder brother out in the field, still working, hears the commotion and wants to know what's going on, and he's incensed, outraged. And when his father pleads for him to come in, he won't do it. And the father says, look, you always have me with you. Everything I have is yours, but we have to celebrate your brother because he was dead and has now come back to life. Two contrasting brothers, elder, younger, two contrasting people in the other story, Simon and the woman. Do you see what Jesus is trying to show us? The person who believes that they've done everything right, the person who is still living under the worldview, 
hanging onto the trapeze bar that I can do something in order to earn my place with God is the one who is entitled. Not grateful, entitled. They believe they've done what they need to do and everybody else hasn't. And so they're judgmental, they're entitled, they're bitter, they're envious. All these traits are keeping them in that miserable, fear-based place because they haven't been able to move over to the other side. The woman knows that she's blown it. All she has is gratitude that Jesus actually let her touch him, let her minister to him. And the younger brother is blown away by what the father is doing when all he wanted to do was come back and be a hired servant. Most deeply, what Jesus is telling us is that until we have failed, until we've fallen on our faces, until we feel that we've done everything wrong, it is almost impossible to apprehend this love of the Father. Because if there's anything in us that thinks we've earned it, if there's anything in us that thinks that we've been good enough to get a place with God, then we're still operating on this old principle. But when all that falls away, when we are flat on our faces and we are still loved and we are still embraced and we are kissed without ceasing and we are held and a party is thrown for us, something begins to change. Isn't it interesting that Jesus isn't telling us to continue to follow the law fastidiously. He's not telling us to break the law, but he's saying, when you have, it doesn't matter to the quality of the Father's love. It is still there, full blast, still on, all the time. This is so hard for us to get. Many of you are probably feeling like you don't deserve the Father's love. And there's this wall up between you and God. Do you know that at that moment of not feeling you deserve it is the perfect place from which to actually experience it for the first time? That's what it takes. For me, it took 10 years from the time that I first could articulate what I'm trying to tell you right now to the time that I finally found that first release. It was in my mid-40s. I was on the back patio by myself one night, and I was still going through the laundry list. You know, I was trying to justify because I knew my life wasn't that much better. I knew I was still grinding it out. I still knew I was just as neurotic as I was 10 years before, eh, maybe a little better. And at least I did this, and I didn't do that anymore. And, that. and then all of a sudden, here was this voice in my head, almost audible, simply saying, if God's love is perfect, then he can't love me anymore and he can't love me any less. And there's nothing I can do to make him love me anymore. And there's nothing I can do to make him love me any less. And this may sound so simple and so pedestrian to you right now, but it was mind-blowing at the time. It just came at such an intensity and such a level that I finally, it was like, ah, oh, could have had a V8, you know? It was, it's like, oh my God, that's what it was all this time? And I was trying to, you know, that's my story. It's the best that I can I can express to you, it didn't change me overnight, but it's been changing me in the 15 years since. I am now not where I was. I am less neurotic, right, honey, than I was. (laughs) 
You need to go and find your story. You need to have a story that you can tell about when you finally started to apprehend. It will come out of the failure. It will come out of the failing. Out of the times that you thought that you'd become so unlovable that nothing was left open to you. And there it is. If you keep breathing, if you keep showing up, if you keep presenting yourself to God, you absolutely will find him. You will absolutely move from fear to trust, from entitlement to gratitude, from a sense of unworthiness to the sense that you always were for nothing that you did at all. And you will have gratitude even for the failures in your life that finally got you to the place where you could accept this gift that has always been freely offered, freely given. You just weren't able to accept and to bring it down home and let it take you where it will and change everything in your life. Leave no stone unturned. Keep praying for, showing up for, and looking for this radical difference in the way that we relate to our Father in Heaven. And Jesus says, you will not be denied. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for who you are. It's not how much you love us, It's who you are that is love so that we can come to you and experience what it is that you are. That's what we want. Help us to find the tools, the time, the desire, the discipline, the structure that will put us in contact with who you are in whatever way that is. In those insignificant moments in our lives, make them sacred moments by finding you at the center so that we can know what it is that we are dealing with, who it is that we are dealing with, so we can know who we are more and more in you. Thank you for the love. Thank you for the unity. Thank you for our lives. And never let us forget, we can only love or do any of this because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.